You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. I had the pleasure of chatting with Shannon Mustafer. Shannon is the author of Tiki Modern Tropical Cocktails. Tiki is the one and only cocktail category that instantly transports the drinker to island time. I had the opportunity to chat with Shannon all about her book and her start in the beverage industry. So sit back, relax, and grab yourself a Mai Tai and enjoy the show. Shannon, welcome to Served Up. I am so happy to have you on our show. Bridget, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation here. Wonderful. Can you tell our listeners what brought you into the beverage world? Yes. Um, I like to say it was a rather roundabout journey to get to where I am, but it all started with me being a barista, actually. Um, that was my first job. I think I started when I was 19, you know, I was doing it in college and the location was really busy, was situated um, right off of a rather large college campus and super high volume. Like we were faced with, you know, lines 15, 20 people deep at 7 a.m. It was just, it was wild in there. But what I loved about that experience was the hospitality that the GM of that shop had for the guests, a really wonderful magnetic personality, you know, really high standards in terms of how we kept the shop clean and the quality of the drinks. And the thing that really impressed me about him was not just his way with the guests and with the team, but any task that he assigned us down to, you know, cleaning the restroom, he would also do. And so it never felt like that kind of working environment where it's like this top down sort of thing. Like I felt, you know, inspired and supported by him. And so that kind of sparked my love for hospitality and for service. And then on top of that, as I was getting better at making coffee, I started to nerd out about it to the point where I think I had something like eight or 10 different types of equipment at home to brew with, you know, from Turkish coffee to espresso makers, like stovetop makers, uh, different types of French presses. And I just went nuts with it. And I knew that I was hooked when I was pulling a shot one day and I could tell looking at the color of the shot and the rate that it was coming out of the, the, the filter, I knew what it was going to taste like. I knew. And so that's when I was like, okay, I like making drinks. Like that's when I figured that part out. Now, as far as working behind the bar is concerned, that came much later. I was in my late twenties early thirties and had been working in the photo industry following graduation from college in New York. And um, 
I wanted a side gig because, you know, it was freelance and sometimes the work was sporadic. So I got a gig at a wine shop and then fell in love with wine and really enjoyed talking to our customers about the bottles and learning about the wines. And eventually I left the photo industry. It just wasn't for me. And started working in a restaurant and soon kind of talked my way into getting a shift behind the bar at that restaurant. And one thing led to another. And within about two years of working behind the bar, I began to run the program. And that's when things like really kind of came into focus for me. Yeah, that's amazing, really, you know, and it's really cool to me, like how being a barista really taught you about um, the complexity of flavors, it sounds like. Can I ask you something? Do you enjoy cooking? Oh, I'm glad you bring it up. Because, <laughs> because um, you know, while I was working as a barista, I also started to host dinner parties. And, you know, for a 19 or 20 year old, like the type of stuff that I was serving was it was rather ambitious. I mean, just think of what most of us were eating at 18 and 19 when we're, you know, broke college kids or whatever. And I really enjoyed, um, A, the hospitality element and also cooking. So yes, I, um, I, I do my best to cook at home at least five nights a week, which is, you know, doable now that I'm um, no longer working in a bar and, you know, I, I kind of manage projects remotely. I don't rate myself very highly as a cook, let's be fair. I just enjoy dealing with the ingredients, going shopping, trying new flavors, handling ingredients. And sometimes I think it's just, it inevitably finds its way into the approach I take with cocktails and that nothing's off limits in regards to what type of ingredient I might choose to apply to a cocktail. Like, you know, nothing sounds like it's too far out there. So yeah, I think being a cook and uh, being in the kitchen, dealing with ingredients on a constant basis is certainly um, a part of how I go about making drinks. Yeah, I find that that's always like a common thread with folks that love to make, you know, um, cocktails is that a lot of us really enjoy time in our kitchen and it's almost like this place of discovery, right? You know, and really enjoying, like you said, just, you know, flavors and the shopping of it and the whole thing. So I'm glad I asked the question. Um, can you tell our listeners about the next part of your journey? You know, so you know, you're working in the bar, you're running a program after two years, which is incredible, by the way. You know, then how do we get from there to your love of tiki? Yeah. So for those listening who are not familiar with um, Gladys Caribbean, when it closed, it was called Gladys Rum Bar. Uh, the central concept was Jamaican jerk and Caribbean rum bar or rum shop culture. So um, the mission was to have the best rum selection, specifically Caribbean rum selection in Brooklyn. I was tasked with opening us up with a back bar of 50, but I think when it was all said and done, we'd gotten up to 120. Like we just squeeze as much rum as we could possibly fit into that space. And it was in the process of developing that back bar program, as well as the uh, cocktail menu, that I discovered the range and diversity of the category. And I found it very exciting. And having worked with wine prior, I didn't regard the uh, category as overly complicated. I, I know some people feel wary of it because classifications 
are difficult to universally apply, just given that there's no um, one set of universal rules or guidelines regarding production. But I think that's a part of what makes the category exciting because you get to talk about it from various angles, depending on where your interests lie, right? It could be a cultural angle, or you could be really focused on the details of um, the techniques and the raw materials and distillation and aging, like depending on what you like about spirits and what connects you to it, you know, rum can offer you a lot of those things. As I'm putting a program together and researching cocktails, I was reading lots of books, but the one that really, I would say, influenced me the most at this time was Potions of the Caribbean by Jeff Beach from Berry. And, you know, that book is not filled with tiki recipes like his other books because it charts the development of rum cocktails from the Caribbean as they kind of relate to tiki or as they lead up to tiki. I thought the tiki drinks looked fantastic, but I didn't think they were a good fit for our program. So, you know, I started off with more of like a Caribbean slash Cuban theme on the menu, but I did put a Mai Tai on and we did have a painkiller because the owner's family regularly traveled the Caribbean and sailed when he was growing up and he was just a fanatic for the drink. So I put it on for him, which is a good move because it turned out to be very popular, but I don't like sweet drinks. So it wasn't my favorite, but I digress. But I put the Mai Tai on and as I was developing the Mai Tai, I got really intrigued by this process of blending a couple rum components to come up with the, you know, the right sort of flavor profile for the drink. And the background on that is, you know, it was originally based on Ray and Nephew 17. Tradovic put this menu on around like 1944, 1946, and it was very popular. So within a few years, his restaurants had consumed all of Ray and Nephew 17. And so he went down to, I think, 15 year or 14 year, and then they ran out of that. And so eventually what he needed to do was to blend a couple of rums to kind of replace that Ray Nephew. And we know now that what he blended was probably an eight to 12 year old pot stole Jamaica rum. That was likely eight, maybe 12 years old. And then he blended it with a molasses based rum from Martinique called Rum Grana Rum. Now, this wasn't like um, widely known at that time. This was like 2016. So a lot of bartenders were blending either Jamaican or a Demerara rum with a rum agricole, which is different from a rum grana rum in that it's made from fresh pressed juice. So that was a common practice at the time. And that's, that's where I started. But as I began to learn more about rum and different rums became available in the market and we had a more diverse selection, I started to adjust my my tie rums, my blends over the years. And it was just really cool to learn that rum kind of has an, I would say an edge um, over other categories and that you can blend multiple rums to make a cocktail. You, you seldom do multiple whiskeys or multiple tequilas. I'm not saying it hasn't been done. I think it can't be done. But within the rum category, there is, a, I would say like a diverse range of flavors, like there's a diverse flavor palette to mix with that I think is fantastic. And that's kind of what got me 
interested in experimenting with tiki. And within about a year of opening that bar and seeing how popular our Mai Tai was, I decided to add a tiki night to our proceedings. And though we never had a full-on tiki menu at that bar because it is Caribbean theme after all, um, we did have, you know, tiki drinks regularly featured as specials and uh, they were always a big hit. Interesting to me because, you know, um, I visited so many tiki bars within my career, like if it's Smuggler's Cove, for instance, you know, in San Francisco and you walk in and you feel like you're sitting inside of a tiki drink with a waterfall and it's all very over the top and a lot, a lot of fun. And then in Chicago, you know, we have like Lost Lake, which, you know, same kind of a, a, a vibe. Absolutely. You're just surrounded by that tiki flavor. And then you mentioned um, Beach Bumberry, who's an amazing um, historian, really, of all things tiki. And he has his place, Latitude 29. And so when we think about, you know, tiki, a lot of times we think about that over the top experience, whether you're at the bar or especially in the glass, you know, just having it be like with the umbrellas or the ornaments coming out of it or something that's shaped like a pirate ship. Can you really speak to what tiki kind of with the heart and the culture of really what tiki is? Well, I think it's it's safe to say that it's changed somewhat over time, but if we go back to the origins of tiki and we look at the work in the bars of Don the Beachcomber, Trader Vic, Sean Crane, then what they were doing was, um, in first and foremost, creating a hospitality environment and experience that is transportive and kind of takes you to another place. And in their hands, that meant you know, Polynesian inspired decor and motifs, you know, in regards to the architecture, the building materials, the bamboo, the thatch. Later on, as you start to see specialized glassware and mugs and ceramic vessels come into, you know, how those drinks were being served, because initially those bars, um, some of them serve classics and we're using glassware you find at other bar programs, but over time, the glassware became more specialized and more specific. And you see the use of coconuts and, you know, pineapples as vessels. So first it starts with the environment, the decor, uh, the vibe, if you will. And then of course, the drinks begin to kind of take on an important role in being that bit of whimsy, right? Um, and I would say in our more recent resurgence uh, of tiki and tropical bars. You're seeing some places that do go over the top with the decor. Like I'm, I'm thinking of you know, Zombie Village in San Francisco. I mean, what an amazing interior. And I've yet to visit Doc Park's uh, more recent project, Beaufort Lounge, but I've seen images online and it looks, you know, just as intricate and detailed. And you did mention, um, you know, Lost Lake, which I, I loved. It was always a, a fun, cozy spot to go to. You know, Three Dots and a Dash and specifically the Bamboo Room. To me, it's just like a, a wonderful example of a kind of more mid-century approach. Like, you know, it has iconography, but it's a little more restrained. So again, I think it just depends on the era that we're talking about. I think the era that we're going into now, there are some diehard people that you know, do want to use the Polynesian imagery and decor and, and mugs with those themes. And 
there are other bars that maybe go for more nautical theme and it still is escapist, but you're not seeing so much of the Polynesian imagery or tikis or things of that nature. So even in those cases, which, you know, sometimes I've heard bars that follow that route get um, criticized as not tiki enough. I say, well, I don't think tiki is necessarily just about the appearances or specific iconography because it's been changing over time and I think it will continue to change. I think as long as the underlying intention is, you know, to provide something that is visually stunning in terms of environment and is transportative and it is, you know, very warm and welcoming, that to me, you know, that aloha spirit, that kind of sentiment of taking great care of your guests is like what to me tiki is, regardless of like little details around the tikis or, or what have you. Yeah, I think that's a really great explanation of, you know, what it is. It is about the experience, right? When you walk in to a place, it's about yeah. the experience and the hospitality that you receive. So I love when you just said like the aloha spirit. because I mean, it it's, it's a spirit that we love around the world. You know what I'm saying? I mean, look at the people who are in the tiki. I mean, it's a lifestyle, you know, that's a, another way to think about it. Um, you know, full disclosure, I grew up on the East Coast in the 80s. And by that time, you know, there's really not much going on tiki or even bar wise, you know, as far as culture. I think for people that come from the West Coast, there are a lot of tiki bars that remained open. And there was kind of, I think, more of an ongoing connection with that. And, you know, for people with that experience, you know, it's not just about the bar or the drink, you know, it's, it's fashion, it's style, it's the type of music you listen to. It's the way you decorate your home. And, you know, in mid-century America, that was the lifestyle that a lot of Americans um, embraced and interacted with. Like you look at architecture from the 1950s and 1960s, there are a lot of apartment buildings and hotels, um, usually in beachy towns that are tiki themed, you know, and uh, you look at the fashion and the different patterns that people were wearing. And I mean, it was kind of everywhere. So at one point it was just kind of like, you know, the culture itself it was just American culture. Now let's um, fast forward a bit. You do have a marvelous book called Tiki Modern Tropical T Cocktails. Tell me about it. How did that come to be? I like to say that uh, rum chose me. And um, in the case of this book, it, it was a really organic process. I came to meet my editor and the publisher through the photographer for the book, um, No Effects, who had recently shot the cover for one of my friend's books. And she introduced us at um, my birthday party, actually. This was maybe a year after I had opened Gladys. So he and I hit it off and um, decided to get together and do some test shoots. He wanted to add more cocktail imagery to his portfolio because a, a lot of his work up until that point was food photography, which he continues to do. Um, but he wanted to add drinks and beverage to you know his repertoire as well. So those shots, uh, those shoots went really well and his agent loved them. And as we were just hanging out and uh, working together, he asked me if I was interested in writing a book. Now, mind you, I was like, you know, up to my eyeballs and everything that goes along with running a bar at this juncture, because we, you know, had only been open for a year or maybe a year and a half at this point. So 
writing a book was like the last thing on my mind. <laughs> Not going to lie. <laughs> um, but, you know, I love working with Noah. The publisher in question, Rizzoli, it's a house that I followed for some time and been a big fan of, you know, having attended art school and I've worked in art libraries and uh, I, I have a dear place in my heart for books in general. And Rizzoli, I just thought it was an amazing publisher. So we connected with Noah's editor that he collaborated with on numerous books prior. And he just kind of walked us through the process of how we could um, pitch this directly to the publisher. There's no publicist involved, you know, rather unorthodox approach to, you know, getting the process of a book started, but I'm, I'm glad we did it that way. And then it took us about a year and a half to go from the proposal to getting the first draft approved. And then we spent another year following that, finishing edits and producing the art. Again, we took quite a bit of time with this project relative to what is typical. Sometimes we will get it done in about a year or a year and a half. We stretched it out to almost three. Some of that was by design, particularly where the photography is involved. We spread it out over three shoots over a six month span, which gave us a lot of time to think about how to make those images come to life. Whereas typically a book might schedule two weeks for a shoot and do it all in one session. So yeah, we, we definitely massaged this one for sure. But you know, what, what the result is, is that really the photos of your book, just, they jump off the, it jumps off the pages. You know, the cocktails literally feel like they have a life of their own when you when you look at them, right? You can tell that they have a story to tell. They're very colorful. You know, they make you thirsty when you look at them, which is a good thing. And I feel like, you know, the book that you produced is extremely special. And, and I love the title, you know, Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails. So what makes a, a modern tropical cocktail? The idea behind that title is that we're in a time right now where we have access to ingredients from all over the world, as well as access to equipment and techniques that the bartender can use that maybe at one point was only accessible by chefs. And I wanted to put those things into play in these recipes that are inspired by, you know, canonical tiki classics, but take the principles of how those cocktails would balance different flavors, layer flavors, combine various spirits and, you know, ultimately aim for an unusual and very engaging flavor profile and experience. I wanted to do the same thing, but use ingredients beyond what we see in those classic recipes because we have the ingredients now. Um, so I kind of use this, this guiding principle, you know, what would Don do? And I'm like, I'm sure Don would have mixed with Mezcal. I'm sure he would have. If he had it, why wouldn't he? I'm I'm certain that if he had calamansi in Buddha's hand, he would have used it. It's citrus. Of course he would. I want it to be modern just because this is the time we live in. Well, we have these ingredients and we have the knowledge and we can clarify and do all sorts of things. So that's what a, a modern tropical cocktail is to me. It's just we're using what's contemporary and um, even if it's edgy and kind of high tech, we use that too. 
Yeah. I mean, I love the recipes in your book. You really, um, really twist and amplify, you know, the rums and all of the ingredients in your in your book and just mold them into something that's really quite special. You know, it's it's very um, I think all your recipes are super unique. Right. And, And a little bit surprising as well. So congratulations. I think that you really achieved what you set out to do, at least in my eyes. I mean, I, I agree with that assessment. Thank you. No. I mean, it, it was it, it was rather ambitious. I'm not even I'm not going to mince words there, but I I really wanted to be kind of no holds barred because I I look at tiki itself as very no holds barred. I mean, if you look at the the zombie, for instance, I mean, that's a pretty ballsy recipe. You know, there's no precedent for using those three rums that way and then bringing in elements like absinthe and grenadine. Like it's very culinary sort of um, way of looking at how to amplify those rums. And it's totally over the top. You know, like you could, I'm not saying I would say that you have to do this, but you could easily take away one or two or even three of those ingredients and still have a fairly, I would say, enjoyable and decent drink, right? But John wasn't content to just stop there, you know? And then when you start to look at the elaborate ways of treating ice or making, you know, like the the ice cones and ice shells and then incorporating, it's like they didn't have to do all that, but they did. So I kind of, I went all in. Like I was looking at this review of my book online and the guy that writes this, this blog, he goes through cocktail books and he'll kind of do a statistical analysis of the contents of the book. It's kind of intense. <laughs> but one of those was, you know, he did a breakdown on how many ingredients were in the book. And I thought, and I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and, you know, there were, you know, the book got a, I, I say, very warm and enthusiastic reception. But I did hear a few gripes about there's so many ingredients in here. How am I supposed to get all this stuff? <laughs> But I also say <laughs> that's part of the fun of tiki. Come on, and tropical like, drinks. One review said, "Who's this book for? Who has all this stuff?" <laughs> but I mean, somebody I've also heard other people say, "Yeah, that is part of the fun of tiki. You will be hunting for ingredients, and you know that's part of what makes tiki fantastic because you you kind of have to work for it if you if you want it." But I mean, again, I. I regard a good number of the recipes in the book to just be kind of like speculations about what's possible in regards to how ingredients are put together and how you treat them and handle them. You know, there there are some recipes in there. I'm like, yes, I consider this to be very workable recipe. You know, it's something you can easily make at home. It's something you can serve in a bar because it's replicable. You know, there's a few that I would put in that category. Well, I'm like, yes, I highly recommend that you go about making things this way. And then there are others that are more experimental. And the only thing you get from it is just like learning how to use an ingredient better. Then, you know, that's a part of what I wanted to um, convey as well. But I recognize the difference if, if you if you get where I'm going with that. Absolutely. And so, you know, you had um, shared with me something very exciting that's in the works um, for you, Shannon, and your career around the category of rum. And I was hoping that you could give our listeners kind of a sneak peek on that project. 
Yes, yes. Um, yes, thanks for bringing it up. It's, it's really exciting, actually. And um, like the book, this particular project came about in a rather organic way. And um, it had so many elements to it that I, I find exciting. So I consulted on a blend for a pot still Jamaica rum that is inspired by the flavor profiles of uh, Jamaican rums from you know the 1890s to the 1920s. And this is a period in production where distillers were seeking ways to make the rums a little lighter and competitive with say Cuban rums because as prohibition brought a lot of Americans to Cuba to, to drink and to taste cocktails there, the rum category was becoming more prominent in cocktailing and, you know, the Cuban style rums, they were significantly lighter and drier by design. You know, so they're meant to be in cocktails. Whereas Jamaican rums historically have been blended with other rums or maybe used in punches, but they weren't necessarily suitable for cocktails. You know, if we're talking about the kind of high ester, very funky pot still rums, you can use them in a few things, but their the application is relatively narrow relative to Cuban rums. So you start to see the producers um, moving towards lighter styles of pot still and incorporating column still and, and blending those in order to make rums that were a little more appealing from a cocktailing perspective. So um, this blend kind of evokes that era right before that becomes widespread. And... Um, Looking back on it, I, I see it as my kind of opinion on what I really love about those traditional um, kind of classic styles of Jamaica pasta rum that I think show a point in history where rum had a lot of character and body and aroma. And maybe it wasn't the first thing you would use in a cocktail, but it, you know, it's such a wonderful drinking experience. So um, this Bottling is with Myrtle Bank Rum, which released their first expression in 2020, and it, it won double gold at San Francisco. Um, that's a 10-year expression that's bottled at cash strength. It's delightful and delicious, but um, given its um, ABV and age, not ideal for cocktailing. And so the founder asked me to come up with a blend that could be more suitable in that regard. So we went to a broker and, you know, I was given some liquids to, to sample and then I had input on how those were assembled and where we landed in regards to proof. And I recommend that if you are a fan of pot still Jamaica rum, that you get a bottle if you can. We're doing a very limited release initially. So I think it's going to be kind of a niche item, which I'm very happy with. And it's currently available in California, will be arriving in New York in mid to late January, you know, should all things go well. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, you know, seeing what people think about it and what it kind of evokes for them um, around the topic of Jamaica rum. Yeah, I think that's incredibly um, exciting. And I'm very proud of you. <laughs> if I can just say that, like, you know, to start off where you, you were at, you know, as a barista, which is such, a, that's a difficult um, gig in itself. 
You know, it really is. And there's so much that goes into that. And then, you know, running um, a cocktail program and then becoming an author and now really consulting on a category, a spirit category that you truly have passion for. So your, your, your journey in the hospitality world is incredibly unique um, for those reasons. And um, I think that's wonderful. I think any time that you can apply your passion to what you do is um, tremendously special. Yeah. And I, I agree with you that I do feel like, you know, my approach and my journey has been a little unorthodox, but I, I like it that way. You know, I kind of, I like being open to those, to different challenges, you know, and doing projects where I end up surprising myself because I feel like if I'm not surprised and I'm, I'm talking about like when it comes to making cocktail recipes as well, if I'm not surprised, then that means I'm probably not very engaged. Right. And so for me, you know, being engaged, it does, it needs to like involve a lot of experimentation and exploration and things that where I'm required to, to keep learning you know, like learning enough about rum to set up a, what I hope would be a credible program in a fairly short amount of time. There was a steep learning curve there and learning how to run a bar program, again, another learning curve, the process of writing a book. We have another learning curve there. So <laughs> it just seems like, you know, uh, yeah, I'm always looking for that opportunity to be challenged and also to be able to bring something, you know, to the bar community, to the consumer that I hope would, you know, be engaging for them, you know, something that I would like and enjoy and learn from as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're doing just that. I, you know, I want to thank you, Shannon, for spending time with me today. You know, and I, I just want to wish you just some great health and a whole lot of peace. Thank you so much for being on Served Up. Bridget, thank you. I had a wonderful time. It's really great chatting with you. And uh, yeah, I wish you and the whole team there wonderful holiday. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers. Cheers.